My name is Jacob and welcome to the 23rd episode of the Folk Podcast. So today it's just myself, Ian Baker Insured, and we're going to be discussing a roundtable topic that was brought to us by one of the members of the community that we're going to kind of expand on. Um, so Enoch Ellis, you sent this in. You asked us about the creation myth and the creation of the gods, what they are, and stuff like that. And so we wanted to talk about that, but also expand larger into this concept of mythology and science, seeing where you know mythology gives us stories and where they can actually combine with science and produce something that it seems like the ancestors actually knew something that was going on or at least observed the world in such a way that they understood it more. And so um, we have a lot of the things to talk about, a lot of different subjects. So I hope you enjoy this kind of open topic, open conversation. But I believe we are going to start with the creation myth um, and the beginning of Ginyugagap and nothing. Oh, one thing we should say is that, as always, we are filthy Americans and we are not going to pronou uh, pronounce things as well as someone that is from Norway or Iceland or Sweden or Denmark. And so please have mercy on us as we try our best. All right, so gentlemen, is there anything you want to start with or does anyone want to give us a dramatic reading of the beginning of time? Yeah, that's this is your show, brother. bro. Oh my gosh. <laughs> See, I don't know why people like my voice. I'm just like a, like a nerdy Seth Rogen. Um, I don't know. I, the last wait time till they I break read, out I read German. Dude, the last time I read anything was on the Discord chat, and I read the entire of uh, the Baller, uh, Balder story. Oh my gosh. Uh, let's see. Volispa, stanza three. It was at the very beginning. It was Ymir's time. There was no sand, no sea, no cooling waves, no earth, no sky, no grass. Just Ginyuga Gap. And so, gentlemen, is Ginyuga Gap just space? Because that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I would, I would, in some context, yeah. I mean, that's how I've always kind of seen it. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Because uh, it's talking about like there was nothing. And like when you look at science and, and you go back and we know that this was created from a Big Bang or whatever you want to call it, there, that was the nothingness. There, there was just empty airspace, just empty pocket of space. Well, it's just like, you know, if you go up with a box and open it up and capture yourself some space and come back down here, what's in the box? Nothing. Nothing. Like, yeah. <laughs> like <Yeah>. nothing. <laughs> right. So then that's just what it like. So our ancestors kind of could like look up probably into the sky and like see the moon, see the stars, and then like wonder, like there's probably nothing in between them and the, the star, their, their moon they're seeing, but space, that empty air. Now, while I know the Vikings were big on using the stars to navigate the oceans, it seems like at least there's no written evidence of a heavy, at least there's no written evidence of a heavy connection with um, like the astrology or an understanding of the stars and things like that. Like I have not seen a lot of information of them actually studying space. No, is, I, I, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I said, yeah, that, that is a good point that you make because, you know, compared to say like the Aztec or the Mayans, like, a lot of their their religion was based off of you know astrology. astrology yeah which is actually a good point i never really thought of it that way even though yes they did use certain things like the stars um in positions of the sun and and, and et cetera et cetera to navigate the seas there that's honestly about it in in certain aspects well and i think it's because that's all they really needed it for like they didn't they didn't really look for a bigger explanation other than okay that's the, a different 
part of reality, but is guiding me on the path. Like they could see it as maybe their ancestor or the gods or something of that nature. And they used it as a guiding pole or whatever to go where they needed to with the stars. I think it's also important to note that um, it only says that the gods created, like uh, Odin and his brothers created Midgard. It doesn't say they created the sun. Um, it just says they created, you know, uh, they created the earth. It was they who made Midgard. The sun shone from the south upon the stones of their halls. So the sun was already there. So, you know, this is an interesting, you know, dichotomy between like the Christian creation myth and the Norse creation myth is it mm -hmm. seems like the gods just created Midgard. And I think later on it mentions, um, I think, is it Baker? Is it you that we're getting a lot of like extra noise from? Probably because my, my two-year-old keeps running in and out. Yeah, I believe later on it talks about how the gods named everything. Like they named mm -hmm. other planets, they named, you know, features, but they themselves did not create them. So I think that's an interesting difference between the two creation myths. Yeah, oh, definitely. Because compared to Christianity, you have God who spoke the world into existence. You know, like he said, let there be light and then there was light. But you know, with Odin and his, his brothers, they created Midgard. And like, I think in other translations, I think in Snorri's version, he where he talks about like the uh, a fire and ice and it always being fire and ice. That's a very interesting concept because it's something that uh, our ancestors from the north would, would know, like, because they were used to cold and then fire was a key to survival. So that's a very interesting dichotomy that they would have with their relationships with how they went about the world. This may be jumping ahead a little too much or a little too quickly, um, but back on the whole thing with uh, with Ganungariap, um, I know that Jacob, you that we've kind of talked about before. You've kind of got a theory where, like the planet, the like the other celestial beings in the in our solar system are like possibly the gods or other things like that or the other realms. I mean, um, but what if it would be more like other universes or or not universes, other galaxies that are already formed? And the space in between where the Milky Way is now was good in the gap. And then everything formed in here would be, you know, Midgard and everything else. So here's an interesting thing. I, again, I don't, I don't, I can't remember if we brought this up in the podcast before, but, you know, obviously the sun is a moving object. Like it doesn't just sit there in outer space, like it moves and our galaxy itself moves. And so there's a lot of moving parts that we don't actually see. And as observers of the universe, it doesn't seem like anything's moving, but they're actually moving insanely quick. Um, and, you know, if you actually look at the way the sun moves throughout the galaxy, it actually goes up and down as it goes around the spiral. And as it goes up and up and down, it goes through different layers of the galaxy. And like those different layers sometimes can have nebulas and different particles um, and different radiations. And so we ourselves have also moved through that in our brief time on this world as well. And so it's very interesting, you know, so like true nothingness could be the space in between the galaxies. Because even right now, while there is nothing, we are still moving through a layer of the galaxy that has something. But the space in between galaxies is nothing. <laughs> it's interesting that you you bring that up because i believe i read an article that we moved out of like the i want to say gemini or whatever time in space into aquarius and for people that follow astrology they, they know more than me but they're saying it's gonna it, it like the the different ups and downs and stuff in space will have changes on us uh more so than the other one because you know we are in this 
uh, space and we're like a bobber in the water going up and down, up and down, up and down. And the different things will change slightly little small things in the universe. It'll have, you know, effects on us. It's an interesting concept. So here's, here's some, everyone beat your, this, this is a conspiracy episode. Let's do it. All right. So um, conspiracy hats on tinfoil hats. So one of the things that I think is interesting, you know, and this goes into opposite of the creation myth is Ragnarok. And I've always seen Ragnarok truly as a cyclical thing. It's something that has repeated itself. And I think it's something we can look back in history and actually witness and see has happened before is the rise and fall of civilizations and ideas and, um, and philosophies and worldviews. And so, you know, we are entering a new phase, just like I think it's the Pisces or whatever. But from what I understand and what I've seen is that the reason we are moving through Pisces is because we just left like a section of the galaxy that had like a different form of radiation and energy. And we left that. And from what I can tell, it has had an effect on us. And I think, and this is again, just crazy talk, conspiracy theory time. I think the thing that we just moved through is the Christian era in the sense that they are, it was an energy that almost suppressed us from the ability to connect with the nature in our earth and in the, the world around us and even our own solar system. And now that we have moved through that layer, we are able to connect once again to those things, or at least more of us are able to connect. Um, and so we went through, you know, about a 2000 year, you know, 1500 year period of not feeling connected to the earth and to the energies around us. And so we had to look for another religious source. And to me that, you know, that was, that was Christianity. And now people are starting to wake up. They're starting to feel things again. And maybe it's because we completed another cycle through this, this layer. So I don't know. I, there might be something there, might not be. But it's, again, this, this whole this cycle thing. I feel like it's something that we've seen in multiple myths and multiple cultures. So for the astrology aspect of it, it's called ages is what it is. And it's the, we are moving into the age of Aquarius just to, so that the astrology yeah. nerds don't Same freak us. out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, I have a very similar mindset and thought process as far as Ragnarok goes as well. Like it is a, it's a reoccurring ending of, you know, an old way of thinking, of acting, you know, et cetera, to give way um, and, you know, the rebirth of something new. And whether or not that is, you know, bringing back, you know, in, in our instance, you know, bringing back, uh, you know, religions of, the earth and bone um but obviously we are modifying it in a way that we can practice it in our modern day culture you know obviously there are things that we we can or cannot do differently um or the same as our ancestors um and also with our level of understanding especially with you know the cosmos and you know a lot of scientific things that we can you know compare to what our what's said in the Eddas and other religious texts, we'd be like, okay, hey, this is, this is, you know, the, the, the empty space that is floating around earth. This is, you know, this uh, scientific phenomenon, like regarding, uh, you know, the, the changing of tides, we know it is associated with the gravitational pull of the moon in a particular point. You know, they, the, uh, the Norse ancestors and stuff like that, or just our ancestors in a, as a whole, understood that this was a thing they just did not have a name for it so they revered the moon as a god or goddess so it's it's interesting to see like they had an understanding of how certain uh celestial bodies and astrological things affected them 
but they just didn't have like that scientific name for it, which is where, you know, you get certain deities and, and the, the more spiritual ideas from these things. Well, it's like earthquakes, you know, earthquakes to the Norse mythos is Loki and, you know, entombed and encased with those, you know, with the snake above his head. Whenever the venom hits his forehead, he shakes and shakes the old, the whole earth. And that's where earthquakes came from. Like, obviously we know Loki himself is not under the earth, chained up and shaking the earth, but it's interesting that they knew what earthquakes were. They knew, you know, that they were caused by some form of like chaos and that they associated it with, you know, a, a deity of chaos. And so, yeah, you know, calling earthquakes loki's loki's torment or something like that that sounds very cultural like i would love to tell my children that one day of like oh earthquakes are loki's torment as he's chained um from his you know transgressions and things like that but obviously there's science behind it um but it's it's just interesting that they recognize those things and had names and stories attached to them that eventually became you know what we now know as science in fact i think it was um a couple of weeks ago whenever we had the other discussion video like this i think we talked a little bit on uh like how we, they didn't know that it was science back then, but, or that it was gravity, but they had the story about uh, Thor drinking uh, from the horn and it being connected to the ocean and it taking the, uh, the ocean levels down. And that was their story for explaining it. Same as uh, the way that uh, they explain lightning and thunder are whenever Thor is fighting the ocean, things like that. Yeah, that's actually something that I kind of wanted to, you know, when thinking about what to talk about specifically for this topic, the, the lightning and the thunder being Thor was actually one that kind of, uh, you know, it, it brought, that idea came to my head because they, they didn't understand necessarily the scientific process behind thunder. But to them, you know, the closest thing that they could associate it with would be a god wielding a hammer, you know, and it, it's based off of the sound and the feeling of, you know, like when you hit deep thunder rolls, like you feel it in your chest very much how like a blacksmith, if, you're, if you've are if you been near somebody, you know, a blacksmith or just somebody using a hammer of, you know, decent size and the power that they put behind it, you're like, you can feel it physically like in your chest and, and everything like that. And it, it's just a, you know, it was a way of them making sense of something that they didn't understand. But pull this more into the science aspect as far as the, uh, like the, the, you know, the creation myth and things like that um, is Ymir obviously is a, is a big talking point. And I've seen, like, I got a YouTube comment once and they're like, I can't believe you're so dumb to follow religion where you think that your, your planet was created from a giant skull. Like how ignorant are you? And I'm like, how ignorant are you, my dude? Um, like we obviously don't think that a giant humanoid was killed by three other humanoids um, after, you know, then like taking his skull and carving out a world and like placing his teeth as mountains and his blood as like the oceans. Like, obviously we don't think that, but when you start thinking about that in a science sense, and I don't, I can't remember if we brought this up in the podcast before, but bring it up again, is if you easily transition your mirror as a humanoid giant over to Ymir as a planetoid giant. Like what if Ymir was a gigantic rock and ice, you know, you know, being, you know, if we think ours, our earth as alive, as a being, you know, maybe a gigantic rock and ice, you know, giant planetoid was as well. And so we also theorize that our planet during its creation was hit by another planetoid, which is what created our moon. And so is it really a long stretch to, you know, say like, oh, Ymir was just that planetoid that hit us and that's what gave us our water. Um, you know, his blood would be water as an ice giant. So therefore there's our oceans. And so now all of a sudden you start thinking, seeing that connection, you're like, wait, 
Did the ancestors know more than we think? Did we make fun of them because of Ymir? And really, they actually had an idea that our planet was hit by another planetoid before science even said anything? That's when you start getting into the really cool stuff that I, I get all giddy about. I, I think it's possible because, um, you know, we look at different places around the world where an asteroid has actually hit the Earth and the scarring it leaves on the Earth. So our ancestors going around like the Norse traveling on the sea and, and everything they're doing and everywhere they're going, they're going to see the scar tissues of like the past and stuff before that time. And that was probably their way of explaining, uh, you know, what, what made this deep crevice and the, the giant mountains that surrounded them and everything, because it was just so extraordinary from the earth, you know, because coming out of these mountains and the, the great valleys and the oceans, a giant truly had to make, the ocean you know i mean whatever we're looking at it through the ancestor lens because it's so vast that you can see and all you can see across is water you know you're gonna naturally assume something giant bigger than you has something to do with this I don't remember where it was, but someone was talking about like the fjords of Norway and that like once you actually stand in a fjord that you will never, you know, you will look at it and you're like, you would think giants exist being there because humans are so small in comparison um, to the mountains around them and the ocean that is beyond it. Like humans feel small in a place like Norway. And so to assume that something bigger than them existed, you know, is not a long stretch. I think it was my Norse pagan journey who was talking about that in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sense of like observation, because maybe that's what it is. Maybe the ancestors didn't have this secret, you know, knowledge that like was bestowed upon them in any way, but maybe it was observation. Like they were truly just very observant people um, and especially in their mythology. So like in a Grimness Mall, stanza 38, uh, this one's the, the one that always gets me all like, uh, you know, I keep on saying giddy, but it truly does. Um, so there's a shield named Fuel. It is set between Midgard and the sun in front of that shining sun. I know the mountains and the sea would burn up entirely if that shield ever fell down from there. Like it is almost impossible to not say that that is the atmosphere. Like they say there is something protecting Midgard from the sun and it's a shield. Like that is the atmosphere. And so again, maybe the gods themselves didn't descend on, you know, the, the pre-Christian peoples and say, oh, you know, gave them knowledge and showed them parts of the universe. Um, or maybe they just were sitting there looking at the sky and they're like, how does that giant ball of fire not burn us maybe there's a shield that protects us or you know maybe watching the northern lights because if you like northern lights are literally just the sun's radiation hitting the atmosphere and dancing on it and so maybe just observing things like that um gave them an idea that there is something protecting us yeah i think that's a, a better way of looking at it it's not necessarily so much that they had the knowledge but they were just very observant and like i said they they, they take things from you know, their, their lives that, you know, their day-to-day -day lives or, you know, just things that they've experienced and that they can best explain it in a way that would make sense to them. Like you said, like a shield, you know, so obviously shields are used to protect, you know, yourself, another person, et cetera. So it's, it's an easy analogy to make and be like, okay, I see these, these lights, or I see these things, you know, I understand that the sun is hot. Therefore, you know, it, it must be a ball of fire. You know, there's, multitude of different things like you can just look at it from a non-scientific aspect and just be like okay it's hot it blinds me if i look at it too close you know like you can physically get burned by it so it must be fire um and and yeah to understand that you are not being torched basically and just immediately ignited obviously explains it or like it it, it leaves room to try to 
understand that there is something protecting you that is, you know, you may not be able to physically see. Well, you know, even think about it like, okay, what were their only, like, what were their sources of heat back then? The sun and fire. And so like, that was basically it, unless you like look at like hot springs, but you know, they're sitting there looking at a fire, feeling the warmth of the fire. During the summer, they're feeling the sun hit them in the cheek. Cause I know we've all been there where you're walking outside and like the sun's hitting you in the right spot. And you're like, ow, like that is warm. And so that connection of these two things are hot, therefore these two, you know, this fire is just a smaller version of what's up there. You know, that's not a long stretch. And then maybe even the idea of like, if you have leather boots on and you're standing near a fire, you're not going to feel the heat from that. And so maybe they had that idea of like, well, clearly, you know, I can be protected from fire in certain ways. You know, what is protecting us from that fire up there? And, you know, maybe that's not, you know, groundbreaking in, you know, the grand scheme of things. But at the end of the day, it's just interesting that they observe those things. Oh, definitely. Our, our ancestors were very observant. Like just taking the next piece here down from that in verse uh, 30, it's like skull is the name of the wolf who chases the sun uh, till it sets at evening in the woods. Another wolf named Hottie is hearth near sun. He runs in front of the sun behind the moon. So like they realized that like the sun and the moon was moving and then to them, it's like, what would make these things move? Like, what would make them rotate and move? So they came up with what would make them move, a wolf. If a wolf was chasing after you, trying to devour you, you would run, you would move. You know, they were just very observant. Yeah, that's actually a really good way of looking at it, honestly, is, you, can, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, it, it, they're taking things from their day-to-day life or like situations that they experienced and applying it to something that is much bigger than they really understand but they're making sense of it the best that they can and just a step further than that i mean and and also it'd be looking at a little bit broader as far as like northern and uh northern or northwestern uh, europe in general like the celts um you know they built all of these uh, all these giant like monoliths that were set in tune to be aligned with the sun at, at the solstices and everything else. They had a lot of uh, knowledge that you don't have any explanation as to how they knew other than it's hard to say what they just had a lot of astro. Uh, what's the word for it? Astro. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 that. We're, we're just some boys from Tennessee and Kentucky. We don't know these big fancy words. <laughs> no, my tongue got twisted. <laughs> yeah, it's because you're drinking too much of that moonshine down there in Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's just insane it the amount of knowledge that they had, and well, you know, three and four thousand years ago to be able to build things like that. And we're well, going off of the knowledge off of one book. You know, yeah, like how many, how much knowledge did we lose? about what they understood right well and it's because it was all passed down orally like that's that's one of the biggest detriments of this is the oral thing it's why you know it's it's important to write down stuff but also going off what you were saying caleb look at the uh was eastern ireland head like the the heads in the circle or whatever like how we don't know anything about them how they got there why they're there all we know is that they're rocks and they're there oh the easter island heads yeah and aren't know. they not heads? Aren't they like actually full statues? Yeah, they, they are. Yeah, they've got like full torsos and everything below them. They're just buried uh, so yeah. far. Yeah. I haven't done much research into it. I just know what little bit I know was 
back when I learned about them in well, high school. But so I just got this uh, the book we were talking about before we actually started recording is uh, Beyond the North Wind. And um, it has like studies into like uh, the mazes that were made out of stone that are still prevalent, um, that were part of some form of ritual practice. And it makes you wonder what were these mazes for? What did they represent? Did they represent traveling through the world? Did they represent something connected with the stars? And we don't really know. And it's a sad reality, but I know that's something that, um, you know, Scandinavian people still use in their practice is this maze concept of uh, the transit. I think it has to do with like the transitioning of worlds. Um, but, you know, there was clearly, you know, especially, you know, talking to people now as we, we pick this, this stuff up again, you know, the evidence of realm travel, how that's a thing that you can do is a very interesting concept. And it's hard to talk about because we don't have much evidence from the past that suggests, you know, that people did that. But we can infer that since they had thousands of years that they were interested in these kinds of concepts. Well, definitely. Uh, like talking about mazes, I don't know so much about the Norse, but I think about the, the Greek myth with the... Uh, the minotaur and the maze there like mazes is a big thing throughout a lot of mythology and it's i think it's the unknown exploring the unknown because you don't know which pathway you're gonna will lead where and sometimes they lead to dead ends that do you no good and you have to backtrack back that's kind of how i view them and see them yeah and just kind of to touch on like other because we are kind of talking about other cultures too as a whole as far as like their their understanding of things you know that we we really just don't give them credit for you know now obviously as we uncover more archaeological um finds and and you know we just understand things a lot better um you know we are learning and discovering that ancient peoples as a whole knew a lot more than we really give them credit for i mean um you know the the pyramids, for example, they are aligned with Orion's belt. They are aligned with an astrological body or a celestial body. Um, you know, and even just the creation of those, you know, scientifically and mathematically, we cannot physically replicate that, even with the modern technologies that we have now. You know, and these are people that were using you know, obviously massive amounts of manpower, but very primitive tools. And, you know, they are able to, to create these massive, massive, you know, structures and they're, they're sealed. Like the, the, the cuts and everything are so just perfect and you can't fit a razor blade in between them. And yet we can't replicate that, you know, in a sense. So it, it's, it's interesting to see kind of like, you know that 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 uh, that understanding of the world around them that ancient cultures had is just so much more and so much vast that we we really do give them credit for. But bringing going back to the pyramid stuff at the end, like yeah, we, we can't replicate that, and kind of it, it reminds me kind of like what Jacob was saying earlier about like Ragnarok and and even the Christian revelations. It, time moves in a circle, and we've lost so much knowledge from the past, like. Uh, Damascus steel. I don't know if any of y'all know anything about Damascus steel. We can't replicate that anymore. It's sharper than anything we can make. Uh, knives and stuff like that can cut through just about anything. And we lost that technology. So just a quick nerd thing on Damascus steel. So Damascus steel, like, yes, it, we can in a way replicate it in what we call nowadays Damascus steel. It's, it's just simply the the layering of steel 
on top of each other and then folding it, which also gets, you know, that's how you get, if you look at, look up like a Damascus blade, that's where you get the different, the waves and lines and stuff. And it, it's just the, it's just the different layers of steel that you have folded over each other repeatedly, which is why it, it was so strong is because folded steel is better than cast iron or right. cast steel or cast balls. Right, which is what the Romans and stuff were using before they beat them. And then they're like, okay, you're Roman now. Um, so to pull it back to science and mythology for a second. Uh, so something that I've always been big on. Um, famously, I took one science class in college, but it blew my mind, man. Um, so I had the option of like, obviously, like biology, chemistry, uh, astronomy, or oceanography. Try to get astronomy because I was like, space is cool, man. Um, but I couldn't get in. So I took oceanography, which was a class I never expected to take. And I absolutely loved that class. I also heard that astronomy actually sucked. So, so glad I took oceanography. Um, but one of the things that really blew my mind, this was actually, I think my freshman year or sophomore year in college. And I was just now getting interested in Norse mythology, but obviously knew many of the tales. And I remember the first time she, we were talking about deep ocean currents and how there is literally a conveyor belt basically wrapped around our planet of ocean currents that carry um, fresh, you know, salt water and warm water and cold water, you know, throughout our entire planet. And then she put up a picture on the board and it literally was just this snake-like figure all across the world. And I was, I almost just like dropped everything. I'm like, it's freaking Jormagander, what? Like, <laughs> like that was the first thing I'm like, it's the world serpent, man. Oh my gosh. Uh, but still, like I've always gone back to that because to me, you know, we can't prove that that's what they thought the world serpent was, but to see that they had a concept of a serpent that lived in the ocean and the fact that there is essentially a underwater serpent that carries things across the ocean to me is just like, it's just so juicy. So good. Yeah, because you have, I mean, with their vast, like with the Norse in particular, like their vast knowledge of sailing, you know, they understood, you know, of currents, like the understanding of currents was a thing, obviously not so much the deep, like the deep ocean currents, but I mean, it's still those, the subs, like the surface currents, I, if I'm not mistaken, follow along the same line. It's, yeah, it's very much a, a serpentine, you know, uh, flow to it. So, you know, that honestly, you know, makes sense to me. Well, yeah, well, I, I was going to say, because, you know, they sailed everywhere. They know about the ocean. So to them, okay, something has to be making the waves move like it does. Like, you know, we can explain the, they explain the tides with Thor. Well, Thor fights Jormungandr. So like, you know, the, there has to be a giant beast in the ocean controlling these waves. So that was just probably where they went with like, off of their observation they probably seen how serpents and snakes move on ground and kind of felt the wishy-washy on a ship if you've you know been on a boat or whatever you know it's real rocky and kind of tosses you and turns and goes different ways so that's probably how they process that which just once again goes back to their observation well and once again I, i'm not sure if i've said this before and this is like a weird combination of all the mythology we've talked about in the podcast so far uh, so far um as i turn into a weird like jersey italian i don't know that was weird okay anyways um so think about the ocean back then people weren't overfishing it like for the most part they got what they needed but the population of the earth wasn't that large and we weren't over over you know fishing the ocean um and a lot of things in the ocean one can live a very long time i mean they just found a shark that was like 980 years old in like the north arctic like that's insane that thing was alive in the viking times basically like during the viking era and you know that thing was born <laughs> it's still alive today 
Um, so the things in the ocean can live a really long time and they can basically, a lot of things can infinitely grow. It just depends on the population of food in the area. Like obviously they can't overeat their population and then keep growing, eventually they'll die, they'll starve. Um, but back then with how much life was probably in the ocean, there was probably some huge things in the water. And I mean, there was a whole species of whale, which sadly, this is all going back to oceanography. Wow, look at that. Um, there's a species of whale literally called the right whale. They're not called that for any other reason besides the fact that they are the easiest whale to hunt because, and that's why they are the right whale because they only swim like 50 feet below the ocean uh, like level. And so they are so easy to kill and they won't dive deeper than that. Um, but even back then, you know, there would have been a massive population of these things just under the water all the time for our ancestors to see and witness. So their idea of like big ocean life was probably so much different than ours now. Um, and even today, the ocean is still full of life. It's just, it's significantly less than it used to be. Yeah, just kind of on the topic of like the ocean in itself, like we know more about space than we do about our own ocean, which is mind-blowing to think about because, you know, we've been exposed to the ocean. We've been exposed, you know, basically since the, the, the dawn of man, like we've been exposed to it. And yet we know more about what's beyond our planet more so than like what is in the deep depth. So you never know, you know, like what could potentially still be lurking in those oceans, you know, from a time that, you know, not to do, you know, tin, tinfoil hat thing, like the Loch Ness Monster, <laughs> You know, the, the Loch Ness Monster yeah. being, a, you know, a, a, a plesiosaur that somehow managed to survive. Like, you never know, like, what truly actually lives in that, in those waters. And to think about, like you were saying, with the population difference as far as, like, abundancy and it just animals that, you know, are either no longer, you know, that are potentially extinct now, uh, you know, we have no idea what they could have been seeing. Well, here's another concept to throw out there in the terms of mythology. So most people back then wouldn't have traveled too far outside of their, their settlements. In fact, most people probably lived and died within a 30 mile radius of where they were born, just because that's how times were back then. You know, to wander off far, one required a lot of resources and time, um, but also was very dangerous because of what was out there as far as the wilderness. Like we did not control nature at that point. Um, and so the people that did travel out far, the people that were fishermen and did go on these long voyages and these, you know, and even people that eventually, you know, became Vikings and on raids, the amount of stories they came back with was probably obscene. I mean, you're probably, you're probably the coolest thing to a child back then is if someone just came back from like a fishing expedition or a, you know, ex, you know, or a travel to another town or something like that. And they wanted to hear the stories of those sailors and, and the things that they saw. And so for them to come back with stories of huge ocean life and the creatures they saw and, you know, describing the thunder and lightning that happened in the, in the North Sea, like those had to be truly empowering and amazing stories, many of which we don't know today. Um, but to me, you know, that's how mythology is created. Um, and that's just, I don't know, that's just so cool. I love it. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's that childlike wonderment you're talking about because there wasn't none like we have today. You know, you want entertainment, you watch a movie, you play a video game, whatever. They didn't have that back then. They were fighting for survival every day. And like we're talking about the ocean. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, only 8% of our ocean is really charted as far as like underneath and stuff like that. There's not much. I have no idea. Oh, uh, well, like, it's, it's, we, like Ian said, we know more about space than we do the ocean. One of my favorite stories I've ever read when it comes to the ocean is a World War II soldier's uh, journal they found. He was patrolling on the Navy battleship, and a squid had come up to, like, bobbed up beside the ship. And this is a Navy battleship. 
and he was looking and he's all he seen was a squid and it like he looked at the he was at the bow of the ship i think and he seen the eye and then as far as long as he could see the ship was a squid as, as far and uh so he walked to the other end and he seen that the squid continued past the ship so if that squid wanted to it could have crushed the battleship and took it underneath with it but it just like floated up to the surface and then went back down so it's there's good. no sorry go ahead oh i was just so there's yeah like there's no telling what's in the ocean like yeah just to touch on that like the percentage it's it is five percent oh see uh, i was the I ocean was over, yeah you were yeah five, i was just, overestimating i was generous yeah just five percent <laughs> of the ocean of the earth's oceans have been explored charted yeah. and below the surface especially and just to put it in perspective on this you know wonderful google search is the ocean accounts for 70 percent of the earth's surface right so you're looking at a minuscule amount well and we, actual and we keep on saying that, you know like we know more about space than we do the ocean but the ancestors mm -hmm. knew more about the ocean than they did outer space right well uh, and well you got the greeks they traveled a lot on, on ships the norse traveled on ship uh even like you go back what 200 300 years ago like the uh whatever era the pirates were in with the british spain france all that was based on ships you know they traveled the ocean more than anything i feel like their curiosity was less pure curiosity and more resource management now obviously like the nordic explorers you know cared about resources and trade routes and things like that but i generally feel like the people of the northern world were very curious about the world around them um, and that's why they were so wide traveled. I mean, especially for their time, I mean, they were some of the most wide traveled people of that era, if not the most wide traveled. And so it's just really interesting, you know, how much they they learned in the time they had. Um, and once again, how much we lost from that knowledge that they gained. Right. Well, didn't they make it to North America? I think. Well, we're still, we're still learning more and more every day how much further they got into North America. I mean, there's rumors. I mean, we know for a fact that they made it to Newfoundland, um, Canada. And we have rumors that they made it as far as Arizona. Like there are, there is evidence of some kind of body or like, like relic that was found in like the Arizona desert of like Nordic descent. And it's like, it could have been just left there by someone that just so happened to have this thing in the desert and then like died or something like that. Um, but yeah, like they could have made it as far as Arizona, you know, with our river system. Right. And, well, and that just you know, show their national natural curiosity of the land and you know when you're exploring these things it's not like it is now like if, if you go if i gave you a map or whatever not even a map just put you in a jungle and told you to survive or learn, make your way out of the jungle your concept of things is going to be way different than if i had photo guided and toured and everything else because your mind and your imagination plays a role in all of this no, I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, the only other, like, European, which I, well, it might have been more Mediterranean, I guess, with the Phoenicians. But the Phoenicians were the, or are, like, the only other Mediterranean or, like, European uh, sort of descended group that I can even think of that focused so much on, you know, uh, sea uh, sea travel and everything like it, other than the, the Northern Europeans or the Norse. Yeah, I'm unsure of that. I don't know much about uh, Phoenician uh, history at all. Um, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess some of the uh, the Arab states, I think they had some form of exploration that they did um, back in the day. But again, this is all me shooting in the dark. I can't actually. Um, 90% of my knowledge nowadays is like Nordic history. <laughs> so oh, I don't right. know much past, uh, much past well, those walls. Uh, other than the Norse and like some of the Greek and other areas, the only other like naval based, I would say would be China. Like, because the ancient Chinese, there's evidence that they made it to California. Um, but yeah, like it's just we don't know what all the ancestors knew, especially with mythology. So whenever it comes to the ocean, a squid could have come up by a ship or a serpent like eel or whatever, and then that started Yormagander. I mean, there's no telling. One thing I do want to try to bring it back to um, is something that I feel like that was in the question that was asked um, originally in the email is the creation of the gods themselves. So like. You know, it's the the chicken or the egg debate. I feel like what you know, what came first, the universe of the deities in which we follow them, or did the, were the deities first? And quite frankly, I just think that we don't know the answer. We can't even comprehend the answer. But my personal opinion, before I you know hand it off to you guys, is I feel like the deities themselves. I mean, it all goes back to the connection of the earth. You know, I feel like this is exercise I've begun doing for non-pagans. Is I'm like, okay, let me describe to you my faith. Is a tree alive? And they're like, yes. Is a human alive? Well, yes. Okay, so we have two different forms of life. Some that are active, have conscious thought, you know, you know, have active, fast control of our bodies. And then you have more dormant life forms that don't have, you know, but they're still alive. So what is the planet? Is it alive or dead? And most people will tell you that the earth is alive. Okay, so when you get near a tree, can you feel it? When you get near another human, can you feel those things? And most people say yes. And okay, so can we feel the earth? And by that logic, yes, we can feel and connect to the earth. Okay, let's move it to something else. Um, what is life but energy? What is life but you know the blood that pumps through us, the energy that you know, fires in our brains? What is the sun? A gigantic ball of energy. And so can we connect to the sun as we can connect with other humans, as we can connect with a tree, as we can connect with the earth? I think so. Um, so what other things can we connect with? Can we connect with something like a nebula, a gigantic cloud of pure energy and creation? I mean, Nebulas are literally the parents of stars, are creating stars. Can we connect to a nebula? Is a nebula a deity? Um, and I'm, I th again, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but to me, you know, that's when we start getting into the, what is the origin of a god, is we start thinking about those deeper concepts and, uh, and the energy that is around us. Yeah, I mean, it's on the topic of like, what is a god? I think it, it, it kind of ties into like what I was saying, you know, you, you, you see these these, or at least in that day, in that time period, you see these things that are happening and you don't necessarily have an understanding, but you can feel it, like with the tides, with the sun, you know, with heat coming from it, the rain, et cetera. Like you, you can feel these things and it, it makes it easier to potentially understand and connect to by giving it more of those, a, a human-like aspect of a name, a just like, you know, a physical description, which I think is kind of like where, you know, some of the you know, gods come from where you have these, you know, it, it's, it's easier to explain a potential idea or a, a concept by giving it more human-esque features. That makes sense. It, it totally does. Uh, I agree with that, Ian, because like breaking it down even further than just energy, Odin, we know is a wanderer. And to me, to be a wanderer, you have to be curious. It's that curiosity. So giving Odin, the name the Wanderer, is giving him the idea and the symbolism of curiosity itself, and and like I think that was a way our ancestors 
kind of interpreted different aspects of not only the life and everything they were seeing, but their human emotions, feelings, and what they were going through. I don't remember what I was going to say. Ian, what were you saying? Go back to what you were saying so it can trigger my mind one more time. So I, I was I was going over the concept of, you know, I've used this to explain it to other people like who aren't Norse pagan to kind of give in the idea of what makes a god a god. And it, it's it's taking something that you cannot physically or scientifically understand, at least for that time period, and giving it human-esque features, whether, you know, it to, to better explain it. For example, you know, uh, uh, let's just use, uh, you know, Suna, you know, Sun Goddess, Soul, however you want to uh, call her. You're giving a a physical representation of the sun, right? So it, it, it's easier to explain. It's easier to kind of comprehend in a sense, but then you're also giving it a sense of divinity by, you know, making it a goddess or a god, depending on, you know, who you're looking at or what you're talking about. So it, it, I think it's, it was a way for the ancestors as a whole to give a, a easy way to explain things, and which I think is where a lot of potential gods and goddesses and spirits kind of come from, as far as given a physical appearance um, where it is more human-esque because it's easier for us to kind of comprehend and understand. That's what was going on. I finally realized what I was going to say. Um, so I did a, a bunch of really strange art projects in college. I explored a lot of really strange concepts. Uh, this was actually a painting project, believe it or not. Um, and I was exploring the concept of the distance between the earth and the moon in a realistic sense. Because I feel like a lot of the times we see these uh, artist renderings or even movies that show the moon being so close to the earth. You know, like most movies show the moon like so close to the earth. And if it was that close, we would all die. Um, but in reality, the um, like if you take it down to the size, so the art project I did itself was if the earth is the size of a ping pong ball, like I actually did all the math and the ratio and moved the earth to the size of a ping pong ball and then found the ratio of the size of the moon compared to the size of that ping pong ball. And it was literally like a speck. Like it was just like a fleck of dust. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna calculate the actual distance you know, realistically on a wall in comparison to these sizes. Did all the calculations. And I think I found that if the earth was the size of a ping pong ball, that the moon was, I think it was 2.7 meters away on a wall. And so like, it's absolutely obscene. Like once you actually put those two things on the wall, like you looking at this tiny thing and it's like, that's our home. And then way over there, was the moon. And it's like, that's the distance. And I actually, like, just to give it a little bit of comparison, this is almost the distance it would be, like, I'm showing a picture to everyone. So like, if we're the earth right here, this would be the moon over here. Like, it is so far away. Um, and the reason I find that fascinating, um, or at least an interesting thing to think about as modern practitioners, is because our mind has been flooded with media. And so our, our understanding of the world and the universe and space and the ocean, a lot of it comes from the media we watch that has an interesting lens. Our ancestors didn't have this lens. Their only lens to all this was the mythology. And so their understanding of things is almost impossible for us to even comprehend because our mythology has become our media. Yeah, because they, they saw it in, a, in a, uh, lack of better terms, like the most pure form possible and almost looking at it with that, um, you know, that new sense of discovery, that new sense of idea and purpose without any sort of, um, you know, pre predetermined or, you know, pre-recorded, et cetera, you know, 
visual representations. So they got you, you when you look at it that way, like they are seeing things in the essentially the purest form possible back then. I feel like we almost have to like I almost envy them in a way. Like obviously I really don't envy having to struggle every day for my food, water, and survival and my life expectancy being like 42. Um, but at the same time, I do I feel like in this modern era of, you know, obviously we've talked about this now and I'm moving more into it in my own practice as far as like uh, my videos is my attack on the digital era. Like I am tired of the digital era. I think it's making us horrible people. And I think it has corrupted our minds too much. Like we have to accept, you know, what we have, like, you know, uh, I talked about in the video that I've been in the past now um, in my digital minimalism video, I talk about the concept of, you know, we need to start treating our smartphones like tools again, instead of our entire lives, because the more that we have become part of the matrix, so to speak, um, you know, just for lack of a better term, the more, the more this, this distance is created between us and our ancestors understanding of everything. And I feel like, um, you know, that's something that we shouldn't lose. And I feel like that's what pagan movements are really trying to bring back is our ancestral understanding of these larger concepts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, it's, it's, you know, for those who know me, I suck with technology. I hate technology. I hate it as a whole, but it has its benefits. You know, I, I yeah, in a way, I envy our ancestors as far as not having these distractions, um, you know, and being able to connect with what is around them right then and there and having that deeper connection to the land and, and just the world around them, uh, you know, and, you know, if, if I could take say like some of the modern advances with medicine or just some of the modern sciences of understanding certain things better but bring it to more of that era like oh you know before tv before video games smartphones things like that i would be ecstatic i'd be happy i would be at peace with myself because like i said i i am the most technologically illiterate individual you will probably ever meet well, that's because you're so short with technology uh but you know i think a lot of our, our problems nowadays and it's even linking to the kids in general is we're losing that childlike wonder for things in life and that's something that is very pure and you don't get to see a lot like caleb you can probably talk about it more so than any of us three with your daughter uh like not so much with a tailor or anything, but like if they find a rock that they find so fascinating and they're just like obsessed with this, it it's something that the adult would look at and go, okay, they're just playing with a rock. But like, you know, that, that wonderment and lust for life is just not there anymore. We're, we're all so glued to technology and to like, oh, well, you know, the moon does this, this, and this. I don't really care about it. We, we don't let ourselves get captured in the moments that are, you know, we're so meaningful to our ancestors, you know, whatever the, the first thing I, I like to think about, like, the, what did the first human think of whenever they looked up at the full moon? It was like, man, you know, where they surrounded by a campfire, wherever they, they were doing, they were just sitting there with the moon in nature, no cars, no light pollution, nothing. That had to be a beautiful moment. I rem I'll never forget, you know, I grew up in suburbia, Ohio, so we had Orion's Belt and the Big Dipper were basically the only stars that I knew existed. And like, sure, I went to classes that told me there was other stars out there. I saw pictures, but nothing beats the first time I remember seeing so many stars and being blown away by it. Um, like, I, I think I sat out there for like six hours and just looked at them um, in wonderment. Now, again, you know, if it was back in the day, I may have been less like enthralled with the stars because I was trying to like survive and not get, get eaten by wolves at night. But 
you know, at the same time, I feel like there has to be, you know, there has to be something. I mean, I know people even today, you know, talk about, you know, people that are like farmers or like in our last episode, really, you know, soil shaman, you know, Matt, you know, they get to experience that still. And just that, that piece of every night of going out and seeing the stars, seeing the big picture, um, or even living next to a mountain and seeing something so much bigger than yourself. Um, I can only imagine what that does to someone in the, over a course of an entire lifetime, especially if they have less distractions like we do now. I love seeing whenever my daughter will find something like that. It's just children have, have a gift that we all seem to lose the older that we get. And as, I mean, us as pagans, we, we have, we're learning that or relearning it more than other people because we see like, we, you know, we see life and other things. We see the energy that they hold in the, uh, the magic that they have in them. But children see that from the get go immediately. And it's always a wonder to see. Well, I think you see it in like uh, like a simple way, like puppies. Like the first time a puppy sees uh, snow, like, and they lose their mind. Like, I wish every time I saw snow, I still lost my mind like that. Um, but it's just crazy to me. Like, um, oh, I remember uh, it was uh, Jordan that came to the Yule gathering. He was from uh, Nevada and lived there all of his life and had never been to a place that had snow or cold or like a lot of greenery and so like him coming to Kentucky was complete shell like shell shock not only was he at a religious event with people that he just met but he was also in a completely different environment it was cold we were asking him to jump into a lake in the cold winter like this poor boy <laughs> and he brought he didn't have a coat like he didn't bring a coat because he didn't own one and I was like and he saw you know it snowed a little bit while we were there so like he just had this mind-blowing experience um, and I feel like harnessing that, uh, you know, again, he's in an environment now where he barely uses phone and things like that. Um, I feel like, I think we all know people like that, that, you know, have not left their hometown, have not sought out new experiences, have not, you know, sought out the, the curiosities in life that still exist. Like just because you've learned it in the classroom, doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and experience it yourself and create your own mythologies and your own mind to share with others. Yeah. I, it, it, I definitely agree with like the, the, I feel like people need to leave their their hometown. So for me, you know, a, a lot of the, the people that I grew up with that I went to school with um, have not left Minnesota. They've stayed within the same kind of like what we were saying, like, you know, most people back in our, you know, our ancestral times did not leave, you know, lived and died within a 30 mile radius from where they were born. That's pretty realistic to, to what a lot of people that I grew up with, a lot of my friends, and they are still there. Um, you know, myself, you know, I, I saw an opportunity to travel through the military. Like, it, 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 I definitely understand that. And I've always- And your ass ended up in New Mexico. Oh yeah, I know. But like at the same time though, but through my experiences and the different places that I have traveled, whether it be overseas, different states, et cetera, you know, I have, I definitely have far more stories to tell when I am going back to Minnesota compared to those who have stayed there and honestly do not look like they are uh, planning on moving away at any time soon. So it, 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 I almost pity them in a sense. Like I feel bad, like, you do, you, like there's so much more out there, you know, and even, you know, it just besides the, the moving of being in the military, like I enjoy, I've always enjoyed that travel. I've always enjoyed going to new places and experiencing new things. And I feel like you know, it may or may not have something to do with being pagan, but at the same time, like it, it was just such a natural call for me to explore and not stay necessarily rooted, which is, you know, so different from everywhere else that I have, you know, all my friends, basically. 
So sure, it has pointed out to us that on the Zoom call, we can have backgrounds. And now mine is also the Northern Lights and I look really bad. I look like a really bad Photoshop cutout, but it's really cool anyways. So gentlemen, is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up as far as like the mythology and the science behind the religion um, and the comparisons between the two? I mean, as far as it goes, like our ancestors, I think had a, a general idea of some of it that we know today. Uh, just based upon their observation, you know, whenever you can only go by what you see and feel, you can only get so much. Yeah, I can agree. I can agree and attest to that. I think it's just, we've become so disconnected from that natural wonderment and just connection that it, it's difficult for people to almost, it's, it's almost difficult for people to reconnect and go back to that way of thinking. Yeah, I think there, um, I was actually going to leave this as a note for the beginning of the video, but if people have made it this far as well. Um, it's interesting to note that like, I feel like a lot of us don't read um, the Poetic Edda as much as we used to, um, or at least the start of the path. I mean, one, it's because there's just not a lot in there, but also because I do feel like um, you start to realize that mythology isn't everything, um, and it's not every aspect of this religion that we have. Now, yeah, if you remove the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda, we hardly have anything at all, but at the same time, you know, going out and experiencing things for yourself are, is the best way to learn, in my opinion. Like, go in there informed, like, learn going into those moments, but also, like, you got to experience those things for yourself. You're not going to learn this religion just from the, the Poetic Edda, um, you know, and the more you go out and experiencing things yourself, the next time you read the Poetic Edda, you're going to find things that you didn't before. Um, like, we all know in here that the Poetic Edda is not our Bible. It is not our holy book. Like, it is a reference book for our faith, and that's why it needs to stay, and, um, and the sooner, I think it takes a while for people to realize that, that you really do have to have your own experiences and observe the world as our ancestors did. I know we've seen too many people that try to use it like it is a freaking Bible and it never goes. I mean, it doesn't like, it just doesn't translate. Like if you try to live yeah. your life by the poetic edda, like there's, like, what is your life going to be like? It's, there's nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, gentlemen, I believe it's time we end this episode. This has been a good discussion. I think it's uh, just going to be under an hour. Um, but as we close out here, normally we say, hey, you know, if you want to you want to follow up on our guests, there's uh, here's their information. So, gentlemen, just one more time. Let's go around the room. Where can you find each other if you do want to uh, people want to connect with you? OK, I guess I'll start. Um, so to find me, uh, I am on Instagram only at the moment with uh, desert underscore pagan. Uh, I'm also only on uh, Instagram at the moment. Uh, just vig underscore bjorn it's a v-i-g and just check out all my tattoos there if you want to <laughs> hit me up maybe i can travel maybe you can travel sure did you just have to look up your own instagram <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did I, I don't use it much um so if, if you do find me on big sure chaos just message me that's the best way to get a hold of me on there because i don't i don't do social media that much on social media. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining this episode. I hope it's inspired your mind a little bit. Um, and just remember, you know, these are just theories that we're talking about. And by no means are we the authorities on this religion at all. We're just talking about it. But if you want to hear more about our conversations or ask us questions that we dig into, um, please email us at thefolkpodcast at gmail.com so we can talk about the subject you want. Uh, we do read through about every email and we'll be planning guests as well um, for February here coming up pretty soon. So please uh, submit an email there um, with the reasons you want to talk and have a conversation with us. Um, We'd love to interview as well at the folkpodcast at gmail.com. But gentlemen, until the hall. 